Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're studying through this book written by the Apostle John in the late first century to the early church, but we have found it to be very applicable to us today individually and corporately. Jesus intended it that way. He spoke to these seven churches, actual churches in Asia Minor, but there are seven churches representing all the churches throughout history, and He has instructions, encouragements, exhortations, reproofs for all of us. This church in Philadelphia was uh, one that, uh, and this is Philadelphia in the old world, not Pennsylvania, Philadelphia was supposed to be the city of brotherly love, and it was hardly such for Christians. They had learned, however, how to succeed, and that was by flattering the emperor. They even renamed their city after them. They renamed it Neo-Caesarea at one point. Another time, they named it Flavius, and whatever emperor was doing them good at the time, they were willing to rename their city. So the promise that Jesus gives us a name would have been appealing to these Christians who were not so welcomed, who were being shut out of the Old Testament church and shut out of society. And in this this book, in in this letter to this church, it's similar to that that we read about in Smyrna, where Jesus encourages them. He encourages them in every, in every letter, but uh, in this letter, he finds he doesn't critique anything in the church, doesn't critique anything in the church at Smyrna. Now, in other churches, he said, if you don't change that, I'm going to, I'm going to remove your candlestick. I'm going to do away with your church. Now, surely it can't be that Jesus found nothing wrong with anyone in that church by nature of being human beings. They were sinners. They, none was, no one is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There had to be sinners in that church, but it reveals that Jesus has priorities. And Jesus has things that are burdens on His heart. And there are things that we do for Jesus that He deeply appreciates. Like when we suffer for His name. I want you to attend to God's Word with me. We begin reading in verse 7 and listen. Listen for the voice of Jesus speaking to you and to our church. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. 
The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. I forget which daughter it was, but she was a toddler. And uh, I was uh, trying to get her into the house. It was raining, and and uh, she was afraid, and so she was holding on to me around my neck. And you young parents know how this is. I had her in one arm around my neck. I had the groceries in the other. I had a book tucked under this arm. The dog was jumping on me. I was trying to open the door to the car and trying to get to the door of the house. And I was really impressed with myself because I had done everything perfectly so far with the exception of lifting my foot above that curb. So I tripped and I started my way down. You know what it's like. Everything's in slow motion. And you can see what's going to happen. If I continue in this trajectory, I'm going to fall right on top of her. So I throw away the groceries and I somehow, like a cat, twisted around and fell on my backside with her on my chest. And once we both figured out that we were okay, she broke the silence and said, Daddy, it's a good thing I was holding on to you because you could have really been hurt. Holding on to me. (laughs) How many of you are discouraged in your Christian walk of discipleship or think that you're not going to make it because you're not sure your grip is strong enough? How many of us at times think, I I don't think I've got enough to persevere. I just wonder if my faith is strong enough to hold tightly enough to Jesus. When he tells me in this verse 11 to hold fast, I'm not sure I can do it. Jesus says to us, like I could have said to my daughter, you know, it doesn't matter whether you were holding me or not, I was going to hold you. It didn't matter if you were cooperating or not, I was going to hold you. If you weren't holding me around my neck, I would have held you in some way. I would have held you by the foot. I would have held you by the elbow. I would have held you by the hair of the head. But I was going to make sure that I didn't fall on you. And Jesus says to us in this passage, yes, I tell you to hold fast. But if you fail to hold fast, that is, if Christ is your Savior, you're a believer, you're united to Christ, your grip is never going to be completely adequate. You are weak, he says here, but I am holding on to you. The reason I tell you to hold fast is that life goes better when you hold on to me. It's just a lot better when you fall down holding on to me than if I have to take you by the nape of the neck and drag you over the finish line. And as is usual with Jesus, he gives us gracious reasons to hold fast to him. And he does this by showing us these 
several reasons, several ways, describing these ways, he is holding on to us. He holds on to us personally. He holds on to us through the message of the gospel. He holds on to us well into the future, even into eternity. You see how he introduces himself in verse 7, the way he always introduces himself in these letters. He identifies the, the characteristics or the attributes that are needed to move the particular application that he's making. So if we're stubborn and uh, rebellious, he says, remember, I'm a judge. If we are despondent about, uh, about the, the, the times that surround us, he says, remember, I'm the king. And here he says, when you are worried about whether or not you're going to make it, I am assuring you that I am the holy and true one. How is that assuring? For one, it tells us He is divine. God is called holy in one place in Revelation. He is called true in another place. And here Jesus brings those, both of those divine qualities into one person and proves that He is the Son of God. He is divine. As the divine one, He is holy and He is true. Because He is the divine one who is holy and true, He calls us to be holy and true by assuring us that in his dealings with us, he is holy and true. Holiness is just being set apart. Holiness is being morally faithful. Holiness is being conformed to that beautiful character of God. That's who Jesus is. You can trust the motives of his heart. He calls you to be the same. I am holy, therefore be holy. And then he says he is true. And when Jesus says he's true, it's not just a... a statement of platitudes. It's not just philosophically. It's not just that he is the source of truisms, but he is true, which means, which always conveys his grace. He's truth. Leslie Newbigin, the missionary theologian, said that part of repentance Part of repentance is not just turning away from your activities, but it's turning away from your thoughts which are not conformed to Scripture. It is is turning toward the way toward the Lord Jesus and finding from Him, submitting to Him to believe the way things really are. Repentance is believing the way things really are, not the way they appear, not the way you're told they are. It is often to believe counterintuitively to your circumstances. But it is to turn to a person who embodies that truth that better way. When you're lost in the wilderness, he says, I want you to know I am the truth. That means I am the way which leads to life. When you think that there is no purpose to history, I want you to know I know the plans I have for you to give you a hope and a future. When you think that he's finished with you, I want you to know the truth. This is the way things really are. I won't neglect to complete that good work that I began in you. When you think that everything is in chaos, I want you to know the truth. I'm causing all things to work together for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. 
When, 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 when it seems like God is, is punishing you, that He's become bad, you must remember what is the truth, and that is He is your good shepherd. Come unto me. Worship me. Come into my courts with thanksgiving. Why? Because I am good. Not the way things appear, not the way you're told they are, but come to His person who is holy. He cannot be. He cannot be cruel. He cannot be anything less than morally perfect, and He can never be anything but the truth, which is always the better way. Well, He encourages us to hold on to Him because He holds on to us personally in the truthfulness, the faithfulness of His character. And then he, he calls us to, He encourages us to hold on to Him because He holds on to us by the message of the gospel. Notice the way He puts it in verses 8 to 10. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one can shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet I've kept my word. I've not denied my name. You have not denied my name. And behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down before you. And they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. What is Jesus saying here? Except that he is the one who has made a way for us. We talk about the gospel a lot, and sometimes we have, and oftentimes we have to define that word. We forget what it is because it's counterintuitive to us. It's not natural to who we are. The gospel is good news. And what is the good news here? The good news is that Jesus Christ has made a way for sinners, enemies, former enemies. He has made a way to reconciliation with the holy God. And He's made a way into eternal life. And that way is this. When you despair of trying to earn your own salvation, you give up and you say, I have no righteousness. And you say, I need the righteousness you earn for me on the cross. You receive that as a gift, as a substitution for your sin. He supplies His righteousness. He joins you to Himself and He guarantees your entrance into heaven. That's that's the gospel. That's the salvation that, that He offers. That's what you must receive if you have not received it yet. And Jesus says, when you receive my salvation, it opens a door to heaven into acceptance in the heart of my Father, the fellowship with my Father, and no one can shut you out from there. Now, why would that be important? These were, most of these who were listening to him were Jewish people themselves. He's not this is not an anti-Semitic reference here, the synagogue of Satan, as some have used it in evil ways in the past. It is rather these, uh, these to whom he is writing are mostly Jewish people. And they would know this allusion of, of the key of David to an Old Testament story going back to King Hezekiah. Hezekiah followed an evil king, and Hezekiah was a faithful servant of the Lord, and he started reforming Judah. He took them away from their idols. He restored the reading of Scripture and, and, and worship and, and just governance of his people. And as he was going about his reforms, he found out that his number two in command, a man named Shebna, 
was pilfering the funds of the people. He was misappropriating those public funds, and he was building for himself an elaborate burial place outside the walls of the city. When Hezekiah found out about it, he fired him. And he put in his place a man named Eliakim, a, a, a godly man. And then he gave him a, a sash, and he gave him a shield, and he gave him a key to Jerusalem. And what was he saying by that? He wasn't putting honor on Eliakim. Instead, he was saying, I'm giving you a key to the treasure stores of the city. And I want you to bless the people with it. And Jesus has been given the key by earning his, his uh, by earning our salvation, by, by fulfilling the Father's command, by fulfilling righteousness in our place, the Lord gave him a key. And the Father said, now, anybody who accepts you, you open the door for them. And only you can open it, and only you can shut it. And it doesn't matter, he's saying to these believers, now it doesn't matter who tries to shut you out of their society, who tries to shut you out of their church, who tries to shut you out of the economy, shut you out of, of any social circle. If Jesus has opened the way for you, it doesn't matter what anybody else ultimately does to you. Three parts to this good news. One is his welcome. Jesus says to these believers in, in, uh, in to whom he's writing in Rome here, he, these, these, he says, it doesn't matter if you're now, you were a, a, a Jewish follower, now you're a Christian. If someone says to you that you have to add certain ethnic practices to your worship before you can be admitted, and they try to shut you out of the synagogue where you've worshiped all of these years, it doesn't matter. I've welcomed you. Later, it'll be the Gentiles who are trying to, 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 to uh, who are being shut out of the church in Ephesus and Philippi and, and Galatians. There are things being added to qualifications for worshiping with others. And he says, it doesn't matter. No one sets those standards but me. Here is what is the determinant for proper worship. It is to come to me. Because he says, I've opened a door for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And whoever comes to me, I make them one new person. The gospel is a gospel of welcome. The second part of the gospel is that it means you are loved. You see that in verse 9? The day will come when he will publicly acknowledge you. He will publicly vindicate you. He will publicly say to the entire cosmos, these my children whom the world rejected, who were shut out, they are my beloved. Third aspect of the of the good news of this message is that we're preserved. Verse 10, doesn't mean that we'll be kept from all trouble. Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles, you will suffer. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. But I will preserve you from the ultimate suffering. That's the, that's the meaning of this word that's translated this way and used this way in Revelation. Those of this world, of this 
whole world, this, this system that is in evil opposition to King Jesus. They will be judged someday, but you will be spared of that. The way he holds you is that he holds you with this message. He holds you personally. He holds you with this message that is nothing but good news. And then he holds you even into the future, into eternity, no matter what is coming in the immediate future. And no matter what comes at death and after death, if Christ is your Savior, he holds you firmly. He assures them that they have an identity that they've been cleared for heaven. He encourages them, he encourages us to hold fast, no matter whatever people attempt to do to us now, to discourage us in our faith, to persecute us, to revile us. No matter what they take from us, he says, you must rest secure that your true identity, your true place is assured In heaven, I have declared it. Realized this a couple of years ago when I was supposed to go to the Pink Palace. It was more than it was right after I got here. I didn't know what the Pink Palace was. I was supposed to go to the Pink Palace for a podcast, a radio, a radio broadcast, ultimately. And and uh, they had uh, they they had given me. I, I knew the day and roughly the hour and where I was supposed to be, the Pink Palace, and that's usually good enough for me. The big picture. It's what drives other people around me crazy because I miss the finer print. And somewhere in there, they told me what door not to come to, and they told me what door to come to. I went to the door, the first door I saw, which is the door I came to, and it was the door apparently I was not supposed to come to. It was, a, it, was, it, was, it was a very secure place, and I was immediately identified as a trespasser, and I was put in kind of a, a holding area. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I understood later it's a museum. They have very precious objects there. I think they were probably moving the Ark of the Covenant around or something, or they were hatching a T-Rex egg. I'm sure there were very highly secretive things there, and then I had breached security. And uh, it set them into a kind of flutter. And then, but I, I was able to rest secure because the big cheese on the inside of the Pink Palace had told me, I will work out your entrance into the Pink Palace and I'll get you where you're supposed to be. So I just waited until they worked it up through the chain and they said, oh, yes, Robertson, he's a preacher. No wonder he made a mistake. Just, just bring him up. Now, Jesus says something even more significant than that. He uh, he says in verses 11 to 13, hold fast. Don't let anybody seize your crown. Don't let them discourage your faith. I have a crown here waiting for you. And the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, who stays, holds fast to me, though they tell you you don't have a place in this world, though they've taken everything away from you, though they say they can, you can't even worship with them, I will make you a temple. I will make you a pillar in my temple. You'll never leave it. And no matter what, uh, what roots you have or what shame there is in your past, no matter how how uh, much pain you have experienced from your background, I'm going to write a new name on you. You'll have the name of my God and the name of my city, the new Jerusalem. 
you belong here. And I'm going to hold on to you until I get you here. And no one can keep you from it. This is how we can hold fast to this one who holds us. He holds us personally. And for the message of good news and into the future. We live with him now in a spiritual sense and we will live with him forever. Though this world rejects us and we find no home here, we have a home with him. There's a missionary we, we supported in the first church I ever pastored. Representatives from that church here this morning. Her name was Barbara Cross, and she and her husband established a whole Presbyterian denomination in England. Presbyterianism went extinct in England several hundred years ago. And Barbara Cross would always write the greatest letters back to her supporters. And I remember one letter, she, in one letter, she talked about her friend who was a pastor on the Isle of Wight in the southern part of England. His name was Jeff. And Jeff, she said, grew up uh, in, uh, on the grounds of Buckingham Palace. She grew up, she, he grew up in, in, in the guards' quarters because his father was a grenadier, a, a, a special security attaché for the, for the royal family. And uh, Jeff grew up running around uh, on the grounds of Buckingham Palace. He was known by the royal family. And, and for most of, the, most of the year, he lived there with his family. And then in the summer, he would go down to the Isle of Wight to live with his grandmother. And every year, the king of England, King George V, would, would participate in the royal regatta and bring the royal yacht down there and sail around. And, and then when he finished, he would come to shore and he would get off and, and there was a limousine awaiting him. And, he would, and there was a path cleared for him to get to the limousine to be taken back to the palace. And, and Jeff knew this, so he scrambled uh, to get where he could get a glimpse of his friend, the king. And, and, and he, but he was having trouble getting up to the line because there was a, a woman there who, who was very bossy, and she was a royalty watcher, he said. And, and she had commanded a post uh, in the place where the king would nearly have to run her over to get to his limousine. This was going to be the highlight of her life. She was going to connect eyes with the king himself. He was going to take notice of her as a British subject. And she would have those bragging rights for the rest of her life. Well, the king made his way, sure enough, and, and uh, Jeff kept trying to wriggle around the woman who was commanding her post. And, and, uh, and uh, he said uh, she, she, she swelled up and ready with great pride to receive greeting of the king. And he looked into her eyes and passed her and down to Jeff and said, your father will be along shortly. She was furious. She said, who are, who are you that the king of England should greet you? The king had already walked off, but he wasn't outside of earshot. The king heard that and wheeled around and came back and this time addressed the same woman. 
and said, we know each other because we live in the same house. Little Jeff, identified by the king of England, is sharing the same house. That's nothing compared to you. Christ is your Savior. No matter who rejects you, Jesus says, and someday will say to the whole cosmos, we live in the same house and we'll live there forever. There's the reason we can hold fast to Him.